0: I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to deal with this first story that Jesus mentions here. It's described in here with the title, The Parable of the Sower, but I think it's a better title, Parable of the Soil, because I think that's what it's doing. The work it's doing is describing the types and conditions of people. But nevertheless, um, that's where we're going to be at. First 23 verses. I, uh, in my lifetime, I have worked almost every job under the planet, other than food service, which is good, All right? You don't want mean food service. And kind of retail. I I wouldn't do that either. But if it had to do with mechanics or construction or just grunt work, I've done it. So many, many years ago, I worked uh, at a heating and air conditioning company. Worked on refrigerators, walk-ins, people's furnaces, air conditioning units, and things like that. The number one service call I got was a bad thermal couple. Now, I'm going to take you technological, okay? So some of you are confused. Some of you are saying amen already. So um, a thermocouple is just a simple device that proves there's heat, okay? I don't want to, there's more to it than just that. But most of you have water heaters, and most of you have a thermocouple in it, and all it's trying to do is prove that there's a little pilot flame on before it blows up your house, okay? That's what it's supposed to do. In essence, that's exactly the intention of this passage. It is Jesus' words sharing stories that describe, in essence, spiritual temperature of people and how to prove it, okay? So if you want to just think that picture, these, these stories reveal, show, and prove the reality of people's hearts and their responses to the, to the gospel, So let me give you the bigger context of Matthew 13. We'll read it and pray together and and get going. But it's important to understand where this chapter fits in the discussion of what Jesus has been doing. Obviously, for the first 12 chapters, the wonderful sermons of Christ and the miracles of Christ and the people's responses to what Christ has said and done, 13 almost seems like it's out of place because it's so kingdom-minded, and and there's a reason for that. Um, Right here, Jesus is trying to help the disciples clear up confusion, I think they were dealing with. After all that Jesus had said, after all the miracles that he performed, after everything that they had seen, he, him declaring himself as the Messiah King, there was probably some questions formulating in the disciples' minds. Like, well, well, wait a minute, if you're the King and you're the Messiah and you're doing all this wonderful stuff, what's with all the nasty opposition? If, if, people, if you're really who you say you are, why is there so much pushback on you, specifically dealing with the religious elite at the time, right? If Jesus is really the true Messiah, as the disciples believed him to be, why was he rejected by the sophisticated and the religious and those who knew, quote-unquote, God? Why was he being resisted that way? Why weren't there more legitimate followers like them? And if Jesus really was king as he presented himself to be, then what's happening to the kingdom? Because if it's all true and we've seen it and witnessed it by miracle, somehow there's a disconnect. And so Matthew 13 is Jesus describing the kingdom and what you can expect. This is, this is how it's going to go, okay? John MacArthur said it this way to describe where it fits in context. He says, if Jesus came to offer the kingdom to Israel and establish and rule it as prophesied in Scripture and it was rejected, was God's plan totally frustrated? Did his own predictions fail to come true? What then is to be the character of the present time? What is to be the nature of the message and the mission of the disciples and the believers? And, and what can we expect out of people and their responses? So in that, those few questions, you have the essence of why Matthew 13 is here and the stories that he shares. So here he begins to explain the gospel about a king and a kingdom. And he shares it in, in some unique ways, specifically parables. Let me tell you the why and the what of parables so that we can move on because we're going to come back to three more stories after this week. But a, a parable, uh, the word actually means to place beside. It's a comparison tool. It is telling a story to illustrate a spiritual truth, okay? That's what a parable, that's what a parable does. In, in this case, Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God to a farmer who plants, okay? And so the players in this story are are fairly simple. You have the seed, which is the gospel, the good news, God's word. You have the sower, which is people who communicate the good word, whether it's Jesus or now the disciples who are given the commission to go and tell to all the world. And then you have the soil, which is the responder or the hearer, okay? That's the, in essence, the players in the story that Jesus says. So now let me give you the what I think Jesus does, the, the why of parables. If you look at uh, chapter 13, pick it up in verse 10 through 16, Jesus lets the disciples and therefore us into why he would go through the trouble of telling these really secretive stories. Verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 13, here's what he says. Then the disciples came to him and said, "'Why do you speak to them in parables?' And he answered them, "'To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, "'but to them it has not been given.'" For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance from what... But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled... But, but did not hear it. Jesus gives two simple reasons why he's now talking in, in chapter 13 in, in stories and parables. One is to reveal, and the other is to conceal. His disciples are asking the question, okay, what, explain this resistance. Explain people's response to the kingdom. So Jesus tells stories to tell the disciples what's going on in the background, what's happening on the inside. It's, it's telling them, that, as Jesus says, the secrets of the kingdom. It is what God's doing who believes and who doesn't believe, and why they respond the way they do. He's going to talk about judgment and the cost of the kingdom. He's going to talk about a future hope and a future joy. Clearly, if you're a disciple, if you're legitimately his, those are things that are very interesting to you, okay? And and like he does here, he tells us how to uh, to, uh, tell the difference between those who really believe and those who don't. Now, this other half of why he tells in parables, is, is, is to conceal this truth from those whose hearts are hard to Jesus. you got to understand something. Jesus was the magic show of the day. Everywhere he went, what he did was very, very, very interesting. Crowds followed, like we see here in this text. But crowds followed on the outside, but not on the inside. And so there was some resistance to Jesus, and so Jesus withholds these secrets by telling parables, because these people didn't want it, they didn't have any heart for it, they just simply wanted the external thing. Sounds familiar, and we'll we'll talk about that and how it relates to us today. It's kind of like this. If you're a parent and you're in, in the kitchen and you and mom and dad are talking about, about a secret and you want to tell a, a, a version of a story to keep the kids out of it, right? You have this code, this language, these things that avoid the revealing the truth. Some of you are smiling because you do it all the time. Um, that's sort of what's going on. Jesus brings the insiders in and tells a parable and it keeps the outsiders out. You get it? That, that's why the parables were written. In fact, one writer said it this way. Jesus hinted that part of God's judgment on the outsiders was a growing unawareness, even of their own willful disbelief. The human heart is amazing in its capacity to convince itself of falsehood, even when it has perpetrated itself. We are capable of lying to ourselves and coming to the point where we believe our own lies. That's the condition of people without Jesus. And so Jesus tells these stories to his men who get it. And it, and it, and it reveals reveals it to them, and it, and it hides it from his, uh, the, the followers, the marginal people. So I find it very interesting that we're at this text. Last week represents probably hundreds of thousands of people around the globe who decided to go to church for some odd reason last week. And that's kind of what I said to you last week. I don't really understand. If you don't buy in hook, line, and sinker, why? Why would anybody go to a church if you didn't believe it? I the, I get confused by it, but nevertheless, thousands of people walked into churches and sang songs and probably said amen and clapped a few things that they don't have any heart for whatsoever. Um, So how is it possible that two people can sit under the same truth, sit in the same church, hear the same message and have radically different responses to that truth? That in essence is what Jesus addresses here in verse in chapter thirteen. So let's let's read it. We're going to pray and then see what God has to say. Starting in verse one, and then we're going to go one through nine. Skip to verse eighteen and read His interpretation of this parable. So, verse one. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. Now, just got a picture of this perfect amphitheater. Multitudes on a hillside, Jesus in a boat out in the water, perfect sound transfer. He's right there. That's the story. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now skip down to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. Now here's what's happened, right? The disciples have pulled Jesus aside and say, explain yourself. We, we don't get it. Be, be, be clearer than that. Why are you telling these stories? And this is what he says. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. That's a key phrase there. And immediately he falls away. Verse 22, and as for what was sown among the thorns, this is what One who hears the word, but but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. Let's let's pray together. Ask for God's wisdom on this. God, this is your word. These stories are precisely given to reveal to us the secrets of the kingdom. Nevertheless, we need Holy, your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to see it. I pray I pray, like I was praying in the back beforehand that there might be some here today who hear this truth for the first time. God, you'd, uh, you'd go after them. Change their heart to believe, I pray. Amen. Okay, here's the story. Four parables, four soils, four different responses to the gospel. So if you want a clear kind of way to describe this, why do people respond differently to this truth we confess? The first reason he gives us here is because some people have a hard heart. Real simple. Look at verse 4 again. He says that some seed fell along the path and birds came and devoured it. Now skip down to verse 19. Here's his interpretation of this. When anyone, anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. Sown in the path. Back in Israel, the fields, the farmer's fields were divided by paths, small paths, well-ridden, well-walked paths years and years and years of people traversing these paths, carts and animals, and so they were hard, just like any dirt road in our country would be hard. Seed was cast like a, a farmer would have a sack of seed around his shoulder, and he would do a broadcast. If he wasn't be very precise, he would be broadcasting, and seed nev- would inevitably kind of bounce onto these paths, and, and birds would hover around farmers as they planted, just to find some of this seed that landed on the on the pathway. And that's the picture that Jesus says about the gospel and some people's hearts. Their hearts are hard like a path. And, and that's how they respond to it. They, they hear the gospel like maybe once. Maybe they showed up at Easter last week. Maybe they've sat in church their whole life and they hear it constantly. It's like a barrage of gospel good news to them. They hear it over and over again with no response whatsoever. Like no confession no transformation, nothing. They, they put themselves in the pathway of hearing it, or somehow God intervenes in their life for them to get it, but they, they, they make no response. And, and Jesus says it's because their heart is hard. They don't understand. They think this stuff is foolish. It's like Paul said to those who are perishing, this stuff we believe is foolishness to them. is power of God to, for us, right? People who have this type of heart are people who think that they have their own system to live by, and it works for them. So I don't need it. So that's kind of the response. The gospel is irrelevant. They have trained themselves over time to tune God out. Whenever God gets close, just change the just change the channel. These these people have a gospel immunity. It does not get to them. They're they're as the Old Testament would describe God's people, stiff-necked. Doesn't matter what God does, doesn't matter how God shows himself or proves himself to his people, I'm going another way. That's the condition of the heart, right? And, and by the way, just to break your little heart, uh, the church is full of people like this. I hate to say that. Um, Tom is here today, and, and he has been known to say this, that the church is a great place to hide from God. And there's a reason for that, because you can appease people, and you can feel good. Both reasons aren't the gospel. They're not the truth. And, and you can feel better about yourself. After all, mom and dad want me here. My wife wants me here. My husband wants me here. I'm there. And it's better to be here than not be here. So I, I feel good. But the gospel, the good news, Jesus saves and you're a sinner, that's just bouncing off. It's got no home there. There. In fact, in 19, here's what happens to the truth. It's not like it just lingers there waiting for you to get your your energy up to look at it and discern it. It gets snatched away by the evil one, he says in in verse 19. Now, my guess is some of you who have tried to share your hope, the fact that Jesus saves to people, you've experienced this before. I, I can't tell you how many times where I'm, I, in fact, I had conversations last week after Easter and I'm looking at these wonderful people and they're describing all of their like hurts and their pains and their confusions and looking for God to do something. That's what they would say. And, and so I started talking about the only thing I know that cures man's problems and that is that Jesus saves sinners, right? And, and it's almost like I didn't say it. It's like there's this big pathway around this ginormous green gorilla called Jesus right in the room. Like, just go around it and get back to my problems. And, and I was saying, well, I stopped one person last week and said, are you listening to me? Because I'm trying to tell you the hope. I'm trying to tell you the solution to your problem. I'm trying to tell you why it goes that way. It's because of sin, and Jesus brings a covering, a righteousness not of our own. By faith, you go free, you're not condemned anymore, and life, life more abundant, and peace will come out of it. It's like I didn't even say it. And it's like this, this kernel of truth just ricochets off the hard heart, and before I can even say another sentence, it evaporated. And it's exactly the picture that Jesus describes about the hard-hearted person who set himself against God, who's put himself in his own position, and there is no receptivity to the truth. It's, it's snatched away. One writer said it this way, because this, this seed makes no penetration, this seed is fully exposed to the enemy of the soul. His lack of repentance or any sense of guilt and shame insulates him from God's help and leaves him utterly exposed to the, Satan's attacks. And that's true. And so what is one of Satan's attacks? As, as, soon as, as soon as this gospel tries to find a home there, what gets bigger is the worries and the trouble and the problems, not the solution. And the trouble just totally clouds out the truth. It's snatched away. Some people, according to uh, Jesus, in the kingdom of God, this is what you're going to experience. Some of this seed, some of this gospel truth won't find a home. It, it just won't find a home. He gives us another reason why people respond differently to the gospel, and that is that some people have a shallow heart. Look at verses 5 and and 6, and we're going to skip down to 20 and 21. He says this, Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now skip down to 20. And he says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word immediately and receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. This person is um, unlike the hard-hearted person altogether. This person hears the gospel and jumps in both feet. Buried neck deep in the gospel. In fact, their reaction is joy. That's how Jesus says. They buy it hook, line, and sinker, and their smile from ear to ear. They, they're the kind of people who sign up right away to serve, and I'll do children's, I'll do the hard work, and I'll give. What, what can I do for the, the king, and what can I do for the kingdom? They get all in, but according to Jesus, they flame out. This, this experience right here is probably my personal, in ministry, my most painful experience. I don't have a problem with Christians who sin because I'm one. I've got all sorts of room for people to be knuckleheads and bump their head on stuff. What kills me is when people walk away. I was there when they said that. I was there when they confessed it. I was there when they worshiped and they just tap out. And I, I look at it and I go, wow, that's, that's painful. If you care at all about people, that kills you, right? So, so here's what Jesus is describing right now. This very painful and yet very, very real moment that most of us have experienced. These people won't last, and here's why. Because as soon as the cost of following Jesus is real and understood, it's too expensive. And I have to put a lot of the blame on the church. And I, and I say church, not us necessarily, but the church universal, because the church has done, I think, a very poor job of communicating the gospel. Um... Here's what people hear in church. Um, God can make everything better. Um, There are so many ministries out there who are pointing to Jesus and talking about only what Jesus can do for you. You got a bad marriage? Come to Jesus. You're you're poor, you don't have a job? Come to to Jesus. Uh, You're lonely and you need friends? Come, Come to Jesus. You got any problems whatsoever... You come to Jesus and come to church, it's all good. He'll just make it all go away. Who wouldn't take that? Who wouldn't sign up for wealth and happiness and wholeness and a great marriage and kids that do well and listen to you? Who wouldn't do that if what you offer in the gospel is something way more than Jesus ever offered? Because he didn't offer it that way. Who wouldn't say yes? Who wouldn't walk an aisle, raise a hand, sign a card, pray a prayer? Who wouldn't do that if Jesus doesn't come to crowd your life? If all he's doing is just throwing out happy things and it's all going to get better? Jesus didn't offer that gospel. And that's why they flame out. Jesus said this, lay down your life, pick up the cross. He said to die to yourself and sin. I don't hear people saying that 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 thing doesn't market well okay they don't do tv on dying to yourself they they do the other ones jesus said to repent you're a sinner turn from your sin that's what he said that's the message of the gospel is that you're so bad and so crippled you have no idea so lay down your garbage life and pick his up will it be suffering yes will it be difficult yes will he make everything right not necessarily but you'll be saved and you'll be forgiven and you'll live forever That's the gospel. Nobody's selling that stuff. There's not too many people being honest about the cost. And so there's a whole bunch of people showing up in churches all around who with joy and enthusiasm are getting involved and doing all sorts of things. And as soon as the cost of discipleship gets communicated, it's over. Somewhere in your Christian life, you will come face to face, like running headlong into a wall, that Jesus is Lord and he wants it all. Okay? That's what you're going to have to experience. And the way in which he describes it is heart, soul, mind, and strength. There isn't one corner of your life or this universe that Jesus doesn't scream is all mine. So you come submissive or you don't come at all. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. So too many people have uh, believed a shallow message because nobody's telling you the whole story. And so therefore they apply to that shallow message a shallow faith that all it takes is some mad moment or some reality about the truth of what Jesus claims, and it goes away. I I didn't know I was to give up my life. I didn't know it would be that expensive. No one told me that. I I didn't sign up for that Jesus. And it's true. You didn't. This reminds me, when I was writing this, I thought of about uh, 1977. Wrestling, okay? I I, I have very few illustrations, so I'm sorry if you've heard this one before, but... I was talking to Brian Berger last week about what it takes to be in sports today. So if you've got kids in sports, it's 24, it's all the time. If you're ever going to play a sport, it wasn't like that when I was a kid. We had seasons. You did what you did, and you got off, and you had fun, and you were a kid, okay? So um, every year in the fall, they would make an announcement on the PA. Anybody wanting to join the wrestling team, please sign up at blah, 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 blah. So this is how the wrestling season went. The first day at practice, we had 150 guys big machismo guys going, yeah, you know. (laughs) Two practices, they all flamed out. You mean I have to run? You mean I have to lose weight? You mean I have to do all these calisthenics and work really hard and have somebody beat me all the time? You mean I have to do that? And I didn't sign up for that. That's people's response to the gospel. You mean what Jesus offered wasn't money and happy and all that stuff. He did call it blessed, like there's a joy unspeakable and full of glory, one in spite of circumstances that he offers. Yes, that's true, but like happy, like I got no worries and no problems and everything's fixed. He didn't offer that one. He said, your life is jacked up. Give it to me and I'll change you. That's what he said. And so what Jesus says here, for the kingdom is concerned, you can expect that people, because of their shallowness, are gonna dart on you. They're gonna leave. Here's the... uh, Here's a third illustration he uses about why people respond differently to the gospel. Because some people have a crowded heart. Look at verse 7, and then we're going to skip down to verse 22. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is a group of people that are attracted to the word but they never get around to being serious about it. And there's one reason why. Cuz they have a lot of other loves. You've heard me say this and please don't get tired of hearing it but but when you come to Jesus and all you want to do is have Jesus fit into your currently held passions and loves that's this person. The person who doesn't love him with everything you got is the person who says, Jesus, neatly fit into my life here, or my loves here, or my money here, or my freedom here. Jesus, get in here and don't don't make me feel too bad about the life I'm living. Just offer me, like, future life forever. Offer me forgiveness of sins so I can feel good about how selfish I am and what I do with my life. And so these people love their freedom so much they never sacrifice. These people love their money so much they never give. These people love being a consumer so much they don't know what it is to serve. And so Jesus says, in essence, the weeds of selfishness and money choke out this truth and it doesn't find a home. These people claim a relationship with Christ but have nothing to show for it nothing. It's verbal only, no fruit because they're in love with the world. I had a conversation last week with this really burdened person, legitimately pain, and and I felt like deeply for this person. And I was having the gospel conversation because I don't know what else to say when somebody's broken and hurting like that. And and I got close to the subject of saying, but you got to come empty-handed, right? Lay down your life, take up his life. And these are the exact words, I love the world. Okay? I'm, I'm sad for you, but th- at least you're honest. The bottom line is, if you love the world and you want Jesus, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And this person that Jesus describes here, in our experience in the kingdom, there are going to be a lot of people who come and say, yes, please, for Jesus, but I love the world. So, one last uh, way in which people respond to the gospel. Verse 8 and verse 23. This is the receptive-hearted person. Verse 8, he says, Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grains, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. There are three specific qualifications that Jesus um, uses here to describe this person who's receptive. One is he hears. Second thing, he understands. And the third thing, he bears much fruit, okay? If you want to look at the people who are described by Jesus as receptive people, they hear and they understand and they do, all right? Here's the reality of it. I have found that the longest distance a man can travel is the distance between his head and his heart. More than anything else in the world, I can have someone understand an articulated description of the gospel of Jesus. And they go, yeah, yeah. But that's not the kind of hearing that Jesus is describing. It's like hearing, like hearing. And here's what I know about the gospel, and I've told you this before too, but the gospel becomes so much more um, absolute and certain for me when I see how clearly it describes me. Do you understand? Like, what what if your version of the gospel was... Um, just the adjustment pieces that we talked about before, like just adding a little bit of Jesus to make your life a little bit happier. Somewhere, somewhere in your life, you're gonna look in the mirror and go, that isn't it. Everywhere I go, there's a problem. Somewhere you're gonna draw the line between you and the problem. You're gonna know the problem's in you. Everyone who's real about their circumstance and and their scenario know the problem is so gory bad, isn't it? What we think about what we swear we'd never do and do, what, what, we, what we tell people about ourselves, the way we perpetrate an image that isn't true. We are insecure, broken, twisted, jacked up people. And every time I read the gospel, and the older I get, I go, it's like somebody's reading my journal. I don't have a journal, by the way, so don't look for it. Um, <laughs> it's true. And when I hear the gospel, I love that. It's, as painful as that is, it makes me trust the answer because he's so precise on me. That's hearing with the heart. It's simply seeing your sin and your need. And then you understand, right? This is the the progression of this gospel. You see it and you hear it and then you understand it. Understand it is that, uh uh-oh, if this is true, there's no hope. And as soon as you get there, Jesus says, yes, there is. Faith in me. Trust in me. And what you need, a righteousness that you can't produce on your own, I will give gladly by faith. I am your righteousness. Amen? That's the gospel. And this person who hears, he now understands what the gospel is. And guess what happens? The result is is obvious. Fruit. Change. Transformation. Um, In fact, I find it... Very powerful the way that Jesus presents this fruit. He says it's obvious fruit. Some some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, just so you put it in context, farmers in Jesus' day um, would expect a normal harvest of three to eight percent return. The numbers that Jesus used are absurd. They're absurd. Any farmer who said you can get hundred percent return on your seed would go, "Where do I sign up? Are you kidding me? I'm a wealthy man. Thirty percent? Really?" So Jesus describes what happens to a person who receives this, understands it and receives it, right? That the truth that transforms him is so obvious, fruit's going to be hanging all over. All over. Undeniable transformation. We, we've said this multiple times in Romans. God doesn't save anybody. He doesn't transform. And, and just so you don't kind of go too far with this, here's what, I, here's what I mean by that. Some of you hear transformation and immediately you draw, you draw an idol of a person in your mind, the the saint, the the person who does it all right, always all right, at least he leaves you with the impression that, that he's got it wired, right? And so you think of that person and say, well, that's what fruit is. That's not what Jesus says here. Remember, he says 100, some people produce at crazy, ridiculous levels. Some produce at 60. Some produce at 30. But everybody produces fruit. Do you get my point? You can look around and you can champion a person, but that might not be yours. That might not be your story. But here's what's true about the gospel. Gospel of Jesus transforms people and what comes out of their life it things that Jesus loves and cares for. Do you understand? Some super amount, some really great, and some good. you understand? That's, that's how it happens. So faith is a transforming one. Desires and affections are changed. Believers can't help themselves but to believe and trust and do. And, and by the way, I, I think probably the most profound fruit in a believer's life is the recognition of sin and repentance. It's painful for us to look in the spiritual mirror and say, I I did it again, but I want you to know something. Without Jesus, you're not doing that. The most progressive, ongoing, every day, every moment of every day, fruit that Jesus does in our life is the recognition that we've done it again. And we hate it, right? The recognition of sin and an awareness of that and repentance in fact, Paul talks about this in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self control, right? Things come out of our lives that weren't there before. And that you can expect that in, in the kingdom. And, and here's what we know about what Jesus says here the, a true believer, how he responds to the word is that it's satisfying and it's good, it's not restrictive, it's not controlling. It feeds, it feeds him, and so believers serve, and they love, and they give, and they grow, and it's real, and Jesus says, that's what the kingdom is like. That's what you can expect, okay? We're on the inside secret story of Jesus telling us, here's how it's going to be. There are people with hard hearts, people with shallow hearts, people with troubled and clouded hearts, and people with receptive hearts, and so when we're throwing the seed and telling people about Jesus, that's how it's going to go. You can anticipate that. So let me finish with this. Why does this information, this inside story matter to us? Maybe one of the reasons is that it reminds us that you can't tell who believes by how they initially respond to the gospel, right? That doesn't mean we should doubt them. I'm just saying that the only sure-fired way for anybody to know is by longevity and, and by fruit, right? Right? Um, this happens. In student ministry, we used to come back from summer camp every year and, you know, tired buses would get saved on the way home. And I'm not, I'm not mocking that. That potentially would be true. But just as that is true, there have been many, 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 many students who would come home and flame out. Man, I was there when the joy was there. I was there when they stood up and told testimonies. And it didn't last because the cost became real. And when the cost became real, the real person revealed themselves. So, I believe in emotion. I'm an emotional guy. I'm a passionate guy. I I wish you guys would raise your hands and sing louder than anybody in the world. But you know what? Emotion is not the qualifier. Fruit is. That's all we know from Scripture. Um, In fact, Jesus said he's dealing with false teachers in the church. And and I think the principle is always true. You're going to know them by their fruit. You don't know if they're legit or not. And Jesus said, um, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love one another like I loved you. And this is how you're going to know each other. By your love for one another. Fruit, there's, there's a way to know. Another thing I want you to consider, and that is this, that th- this truth reminds us that our, that our job as a church is to make disciples. Now, I want you to listen very carefully, not converts. And I say that specifically for this reason. There are all sorts of churches and ministries out there who care nothing but butts and seats. All they want to do is, is start counting and I, I would love to count everybody as a believer. That's not my job. Our job, biblically, is to make disciples, which means we tell them of the cost of following Christ. And here's what I know about making disciples. It's life on life for life, and you never get, you never get to quit. You never arrive. We use, like, uh, uh, this description, four T's of discipleship. Truth, touch, time, and tension. If you want to be disciple, or you want to disciple, you have to give truth, you have to give your life, right? You have to give time and, and it's going to involve a lot of tension. That's, that's what we do. We make disciples. We don't go around it just to count, okay? And this is another truth I want you to consider, and that is if anything is obvious about this passage, it's a call from Jesus to lay down your life. And here's the promise that I make to you because Jesus made it to me. That if you lay down your life, you get his. And that's exponentially better. Not only is your heart so changed that God now will call you a friend or a son or a daughter. Not only are you so changed that your address in the future will be in heaven forever in glory, but but you get to see life from a different vantage point. The fear, if you trust in Christ, goes away. The hope arrives. All the things people are looking for in people, drugs, and pleasure is all found alone in Christ. So if there's anything to consider this morning, it's this. Will you lay down your life? For Christ maybe maybe some of you came in with a hard heart maybe the Holy Spirit arrived and did some plowing and the seed went a little deeper let it grow trust in Christ and I suppose one of the things for the rest of us is maybe what we should do today is take inventory of our life just ask the question ask the question is it real do you really believe in Christ is it by faith alone And are you seeing the work that only Christ can do, right? All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this story, these illustrations. Clearly, we find them to be true, not in our life, but just also in the world around us. God, it reminds me of how important the the precision of the gospel is communicated is, because people getting saved to things that aren't the gospel means no salvation at all. So God, I pray that we would take stock of our life, we would look at it honestly and assess whether what we have is just a just an interest in Christ or life in Christ. God, I pray that you would give us the The confidence that the work you do, you finish. That you'd give us the confidence that your word is power and it can transform dead people into living people. My prayer is for people in this room who might have come in just totally um, sidetracked and now have been confronted with this story about our responses to you. I pray, God, your Holy Spirit would work in them and have them see that their sin can be forgiven by faith alone in Christ, that he died and he rose again to give life to us, I pray. Amen.